Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Chase the Vase podcast, guys. Man, what an honor to have my guest here today in the studio, Michael Sugru. Michael is a retired police sergeant. He was just bragging a little bit before he came on that he's the best-selling author, man, which is really cool, of the book called Relentless Courage. And I've actually had Michael on the podcast before. We were talking about the book then. Man, I'm super excited to have you on. Appreciate you being my friend, brother. No, absolutely. And it, you know, it seems like yesterday I was just on here, but it's been quite some time. You know, you and I, we're both out there every day trying to save lives and, and we're putting work in. And that's what this is all about is teamwork, collaboration. And we can't do it on our own. So we need to work together and, and help our brothers and sisters out. Dude, you know what was funny is I was just actually just thinking about that. And I was wondering why it's taken me about a year to have you back on the podcast. That's crazy, right? We're doing the same work, but I don't know what you want to call us professionals. Why we don't collaborate more. I don't, I mean, it was just a thought. What are your thoughts on that? Man, you're opening Pandora's box, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you like it is. What I've seen, and I don't understand why this is the case, but I think a lot of people out there, especially organizations, are very territorial and they get threatened when someone new is coming out and trying to do something different, you know, trying to help people. And I don't look at it that way. I look at it as like, you know, I'm a small cog in the wheel and I'm not unique or special, but I'm willing to put it all out there. I mean, the good, the bad, the ugly, like, you know, and the thing is, my sole purpose is to save lives. You know, I'm not out there doing this for money. I'm not running a business. I'm not running a nonprofit. I'm literally trying to get the word out and the message out that it's okay to ask for help. And that when you do, there is help and there's hope and there's a whole new life on the other side of this. That That's what this is all about. And I disagree with you, Mike. I do think you're unique. I do think you're special. Even though it's hard for us as first responders, retired first responders to say that, we're a unique set of individuals. I look around it at the pool of men who are doing this. And there's not a lot of guys. I mean, there's a lot of people proclaiming they're doing this, but on the ground level, it's not happening. Like we think it's happening. That makes sense. It does. And it's, it's a harsh reality and it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it really doesn't because I think if you just lead with your heart and you speak from your heart and and you're doing it for the right reasons, it's going to come out that way and it's going to resonate with people. And that's, what's really going to make a difference. When you said territorial, you know, what's interesting is we all do have a niche. My niche would be, and I like to be micro niche, if that makes any sense. I like to get down to the nitty gritty, you know. I consider, if I had to like put a niche, a name on mine, I like working with first responders who are an opiate addiction, right? I want those kind of guys because I feel like that's what I'm really good at healing. And I do struggle. I've had my bouts with post-traumatic stress. But if you said, Brock, are you an expert at post-traumatic stress? Can you heal me? Man, I don't know. Does that make sense? Like I overcome and how I'm working through it, but I'm not that guy. If you had to knit yourself, what would you be? You know, the thing is, like you, I think we're just out there sharing our story and our experiences. And I'm not out there claiming that I have all the answers. But what I do know is that in your case, whether it's, you know, dealing with an addict or it's dealing with somebody with post-traumatic stress injury which I consider my area of focus, you know, the facts are is that 
man, it's a combination approach. There's a lot of different things out there and there's not one magic thing that works for everybody. And in my case, I've done a lot of different things that have helped and I'm still on my journey of recovery. I mean, this is something that is going to be with me the rest of my life. And so you have to have an open mind and you have to be willing to try different things, to reach out of your comfort zone. And so what I'm trying to do is just share you know, my experiences and what I've learned along the way, the many mistakes that I made so that the people don't make the same mistakes I did, you know, learn from our mistakes. What would you say one of your mistakes may have been that's not in the book that you'd want to share with us? You know, I think it is in the book, but one of the biggest mistakes that I made, I mean, before I even started my law enforcement career was that I made a decision. I would never talk about the job. I would never bring work home. I thought I was protecting my family and my loved ones. And in the end, literally led to my divorce. It led to relationship issues because I didn't let people in. And when I came home pissed off or in a bad mood, they didn't understand that it was because of the trauma that I was dealing with every single day, you know, pure evil and the negativity of the world because I wasn't sharing that. And so because I wasn't communicating and I wasn't talking, you know, I was physically there, but I was not emotionally there. And that's one of my biggest mistakes is that I wish I would have opened that door of communication from day one. Man, that's powerful. So tell me this, man, let's just dive into it. Why a book? Why Relentless Courage? Why would you write it? Why would it take you so long? What was your motivation behind it? Well, I got to tell you the whole background story to this because it's, it's kind of a cool story. And my co-author, Dr. Shauna Springer, also known as Doc Springer, she's an amazing, amazing person. She's a clinical psychologist. She'd already written a couple books. She's worked with combat military veterans and first responders most her career. So she truly gets it. She truly understands it. And so back up before COVID happened, she actually reached out to me on LinkedIn. I didn't know her. She didn't know me, but she saw that I was out there, you know, talking about this stuff and she wanted to introduce herself and kind of just have a talk. So we set up a phone call and she was telling me about what she does, which is she works with stellate ganglion block, which is a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And we actually talk about that in the book. I've had the procedure done. But at that time, honestly, I was, I was like skeptical. I was like, you know, I don't know about this. It seems kind of too good to be true. But during that conversation, I shared my story. And then she asked me, she's like, straight up asked me, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I, I kind of laughed because I said, you know what? I've been asked that before. And I have thought about it. I said, but because of post-traumatic stress, like I am burnt out. I don't have the focus I used to have. I don't have the dedication like that. I just don't think I could get a project like that done. And so we kind of just left that conversation at that. And a couple months later, thank God, she hits me back up and she says, look, she's like, I've heard hundreds and hundreds of trauma stories. I have, but your story, it's staying with me and your story it's going to save countless lives. And she said, she's like, I want to make this project happen for you. And at that immediate moment, I didn't even hesitate. I knew she was the right person to make this happen. And so we decided at that time, on that day, that we're going to do this book. And we literally, then COVID happened. So we didn't even meet for over a year and a half into this project. We did it all via Zoom and all via phone. And the thing is, this book is so unique. Like there is nothing out there like this because you have 
the firsthand perspective of a military veteran, of a police sergeant, but you also have the clinical observations, the explanations, you know, the summary, the analysis where it breaks everything down so that anybody out there, whether you're a first responder, a military member, a loved one, or just somebody on the street, you're going to see the true human behind the badge. You're going to see the true toll of this job and what it does to us mentally, physically, and on our families and our loved ones. And this book, I'm telling you right now, it is saving lives every day now. That's powerful. You know, it's funny, Mike. I think all of us want to write a book. We all want to share a story. And I'm proud of you, man, because I know what it takes to write a book. I just completed a journal for our program so guy, men can follow along. It's 66 days. And I think I wrote like probably 15 pages worth and the rest is kind of journaling, right? But man, I'm telling you what, like the stress, dude, the stress, like, man, people are going to read this. What are they going to think about me? What are they going to think about my story? So that post-traumatic stress comes up too, you know? Tell me in this book, man, what's your favorite concept or your favorite part of the book that you... I promise you, bro, as soon as this podcast is over, I'm ordering this book. The only thing is, people that know me well enough, I only like to get books that are signed. I know that sounds super crazy. I want the authors, I know what it takes to write a book. So I'm just like, okay, Mike, if I buy this book, I want you to sign it and and write something in it. But I'm going to order it because I think it's important. But is there a part in there that you feel is just super powerful that you want to share? That's tough to narrow down because I'm going to tell you right now that every chapter, every single chapter, I bear my soul. I mean, it goes all the way back to childhood until present day. And there is some just horrific incidents and things that happen with myself, with my family, with my loved ones, with my best friend. I mean, man, it's so hard to just narrow it down like that. But I'm going to tell you that I think the most powerful part about this book is how I came out the other side because I got so dark that I didn't want to be here anymore. I got so dark that I wanted to die in the line of duty. I wanted to die by bad guy, the opposite of suicide by cop. I wanted to die by bad guy. You know, that that's where I was at in life. Yeah. I didn't want to be here. And and I was so alone. I was so desperate. Like I didn't see a way out. I didn't have hope. I didn't even know how to get help. And so the most powerful thing about this book is is that it shows you that you're not alone. It shows you that there's so much help out there. There's so much understanding out there. And that's the key to this is that when people read it, it resonates with them because it's not that they have to have the exact same incident. It's when you're a first responder, the things that we're exposed to and the effect that it has on us, we all have the same or similar feelings and the same effects on our mental health, our physical health, our families, our loved ones. And that's the key to this is that this shows hope. It shows that there's a whole new life on the other side of this. So in your darkest moment, how much, uh, I know we've talked before, any addiction causing the viral down downward motion, do you think? Alcohol definitely contributed to my downward spiral because Immediately, I used alcohol as a coping mechanism, as something to numb me out to where, um, you know, the first thing was I just, I couldn't go to sleep. I was having constant nightmares. I was having panic attacks. And so alcohol was a way for me to just literally pass out. But as you know, it just makes things worse. And then you just carry on this cycle of where, you know, you're drinking yourself to sleep every single night, hoping that everything is going to go away. And when you wake up the next day, it's going to magically be better. 
but then gradually it's getting worse and worse and worse. You know, and that's the thing is that whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, extramarital affairs, you know, porn addictions, gambling addictions, these are all vices that we use to numb ourselves, to give us that adrenaline boost in many cases, to kind of just forget about what's really going on at home or going on in our life. And, and as you know, it doesn't help anything. It makes it much, much worse. And that needs to be addressed. You've done a lot of post-traumatic stress work, or what do you call it? Do you call it PTSD? I know people get mad when you put the D in there, but what's your feeling on that? So uh, we talk about this in the book. So the, you know, the, the clinical term is post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't like to use that. I've advocated for many years that it's post-traumatic stress injury. And I'm going to explain why that is. The first reason is that when you say disorder, that's got an absolute negative connotation to it. It tells you that, A, first of all, I don't want a disorder. And this is something that you know I'm helpless over. I can't get rid of. I'm stuck with. And I have no control over it. And the facts are that being a first responder, or even just being a civilian for that matter, when you're exposed to trauma and repeated trauma, it causes a physical injury to the brain. It causes a chemical change. It changes the physical part of the brain. It's proven. It's a fact. I'm not a medical doctor, but there's definitely plenty of studies and brain scans and imagings that show a human brain when it's exposed to trauma. And so the thing is, if it's an injury, that means that we can do something about it. We can heal it. We can get better. We can address it. You know, as a first responder, man, we know so many people with back injuries, knee injuries, shoulder injuries. And what do we do? We report it. Maybe we get some cortisone injections, try some physical therapy, maybe surgery, medication, rehab. I mean, all these things. Well, we do the same thing for a mental injury. And that's why I strongly, strongly advocate for post-traumatic stress injury. Yeah, I love that. But what's interesting is we were okay having the on-job injury when I got run over. Everybody knew about it, right? I mean, it was, I got hit by a car. I had surgery. So it was like, very understandable. What people didn't see was behind the scenes, man, where I got nervous walking behind cars for the longest time, dude. I was waiting to get run over again. You know, that event, I mean, it would wake me up at night and it hypersensitivity and, and all of that was going on with it. And it's faded, but there's still times where I can feel my heart palpitations coming in, you know, and I, and I still think, I mean, I'm working through it still. And I just love the fact that you're willing to talk about it. I cannot tell you the ample times as men, we, we mask our problems. We don't talk about it. And then we find it in the news tomorrow morning that this individual took their life. And so, so you're speaking to a lot of men in this podcast, brother. What would you tell the men who are hearing your voice right now? What would you say to them? First off, I mean, for so long, for so many years, I thought asking for help, you know, talking about feelings talking about the real person that I was, I thought that was weakness. I thought it was shameful. I was embarrassed about it. In fact, I didn't even talk about my recovery until a couple of years after I started the process. But what I've learned is, is that that day that I finally asked for help, that was the strongest, bravest, most courageous thing I ever did. It wasn't anything in the military. It wasn't anything on the streets as a law enforcement officer. It was truly looking inside myself, realizing what was going on in my life and around me and saying, look, I can't do this on my own. I need somebody to help me. I need somebody to guide me through this process. And that's real strength. That's real courage. 
I got kind of a question. I'm sure you, I don't know if you've ever been asked this, but hopefully I can throw this at you, but, and maybe you don't know the answer, but I think it's really important is first of all, the, the first question is what was harder to maybe diagnose for you? The fact that you had post-traumatic stress or the fact that the addiction was playing a role in it? To me, it's, they go hand in hand. It's like, it's, it's not one without the other. For me personally, it was always there together and it was an automatic coping tool for me to turn towards alcohol. It was just a natural thing for me to say, I don't like the way I'm feeling. I want to escape reality. And because of that, I'm going to turn to this to kind of help me out to numb myself. The reason I'm asking you that is, I guess I want to know, did you have to work through your addiction as well? I know what's interesting is, is you got a diagnosis for post-traumatic stress, right? So did you ever go to the doctor and they said, yes, you have post-traumatic stress. Okay. So if that's the fact, when did you realize that you also had an addiction that you had to battle through? Because just because we get diagnosed and we start healing through post-traumatic stress, we still have these other addictions. We still have alcohol, right? We still have whatever we're using. And did you feel like that was like a double-edged sword that it was hard to get through? Or do you just feel like once you handled the post-traumatic stress, the addiction just followed through? I would definitely say the latter. You know, one thing I realized is that when I went through this program called the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat, and I went to that program about five months into my recovery. Amazing, amazing program. You know, I currently volunteer there now. And we did uh, different self-assessments. And one of those was an alcohol questionnaire. And so, and we also did a actual AA meeting where we brought in previous peers who had been alcoholics and they ran a 12-step meeting. And for me, even today, I don't actually consider myself as being an addict or an alcoholic. I do know that I relied heavily on alcohol to get me through it. But I also know that like today, you know, I drink occasionally socially, but it's not something I need, you know? So for me, it wasn't like, you know, okay, you're drinking, this is an issue, you've got to stop and you can't ever drink again. For me, it was more of just a coping mechanism. And when I learned other coping mechanisms, positive coping mechanisms, like talk therapy, whether it's EMDR, focusing on working out, eventually medication, those things reduce the alcohol use. That's important, you know. I think a lot of people struggle with that. And so basically you were using the alcohol as a coping mechanism. We call it as a, uh, you were medicating, right? Your self-medication was something that chilled you out. It was, you weren't able to have to think about it, blacking out, falling asleep, all those things come into play. So tell me this, man, how, once you got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, what was the next step? Because I think a lot of guys are concerned that, hey, if, if I get this diagnosis, if someone says you, Brock Bevel, have post-traumatic stress, then that changes my whole life. Walk me through that. What's it look like? Well, for me, you know, when I first asked for help, I got connected right away with a culturally competent therapist who was absolutely amazing. And, you know, the start of that process is building trust, but then it was answering, you know, several questionnaires, going in depth on my trauma. And when she told me that I had post-traumatic stress, it was something that I already knew. Like I actually knew it in the back of my mind. It's something I never wanted to acknowledge because to me, I had this misconception about it that, you know, from I'll just call it ignorance, you know, from watching war movies or, or seeing things on TV and thinking that post-traumatic stress was these people that were just on the edge and were going to shoot up buildings and literally were like second away from just breaking and falling apart. And that's not what post-traumatic stress is. 
you know, post-traumatic stress, it's a combination of things of anxiety, you know, depression, things that are a result of this trauma. But the key is knowing when you're triggered and how to address those triggers. You know, you mentioned earlier about the car thing, about even today, sometimes something will come to you where you, you have a feeling when you're getting close to walking behind a vehicle. And I still get triggered today. I'm going to be triggered for the rest of my life, but I know how to deal with those triggers. So for me, the post-traumatic stress diagnosis, it wasn't, it was more affirmation. It was more reaffirming what I already knew inside. And it was somebody who had a bunch of degrees, who had been to school, who, you know, diagnoses people who finally told me, yes, you have post-traumatic stress. So it went from that feeling of wondering, do I have it? Do I not have it? Am I just going crazy? You know, to having somebody say, no, look, like you're normal. What you're experiencing is normal. Your feelings are normal. This is all a result of your job and what you do. You know, you're not going crazy. You're not going to be locked up. You know, there wasn't any time where like guns were taken away or I was detained. I mean, it was literally like, okay, you have post-traumatic stress. Here's how we're going to deal with it. Here's how we're going to move forward. And let's get this game plan together. You know, it was, I would say it's the same as if you found out you had a shoulder injury and the doctor finally tells you, hey, I know you've been dealing with this pain for months and months and months, but let me tell you what it actually is. And now that you know what it is, I'm going to tell you how we're going to fix it and how we're going to address it. But it's not always that way. Like, I, it sounds like you had a cool experience. I know for law enforcement officers right now in that are working, I have some buddies that are doing it. They're nervous about going in, telling a supervisor, hey, bro, I'm struggling. Like, I can't sleep. I got insomnia. These dreams are coming up. Hypervigilant. I mean, all those things that we see, but they're concerned because mental health still not really a big thing in law enforcement. In some places it is, but they're worried, hey, man, if I'm going to be outed as a guy that can't handle it. And so how would you speak to them? And I think that's more of a a department issue that they need to become educated, but the individual soldier, the individual officer that's in battle, how do you get them to say, listen, man, here's my red flag. I got to talk about it. I need to start this process. Well, let me just tell you, I, I call that admin betrayal. Some people talk about moral injury and I talk about this extensively in my book. And so, and let's be real. So when I started my recovery process in the beginning, it was all very supportive. It was all very good. And it came to a point about six months in where I faced that admin betrayal for the first time. I call it admin for administrative betrayal. So when I talk about that, I'm talking about the higher ups of an agency, you know, whether it's the chief, captains, lieutenants, the people that are the command staff of a fire department, a police department. And it was about six months into my recovery where I had a captain who basically was trying to talk me into retirement at that point. And my whole goal was to get better and come back to work. And that's a reality of it. That's something that, you know, didn't happen in the beginning, but it happened then. And then it carried on through that in a bunch of different events, including an eye investigation that was dropped on me for something that supposedly happened a year and a half earlier. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is one of the major parts about my book because I put it all out there. I go into detail because this is the reality of it is that. And you've already said it. I speak across this nation, but I meet so many people who face this admin betrayal. And that's the real issue because that's what pushes people over the edge to commit suicide. And that's what we have to change. But people need to realize that they're not the only ones. And when they read this book, you know what they're going to say? Chapter after chapter, they're going to say, me too. That's what they're going to say. 
And that's where they're going to see they're, they're not alone because, Hey, this stuff's not talked about. It's not talked about. And I've faced some issues when I've gone out there with my speaking where I've had certain organizations, which are like, Hey, you know, we want to talk to you first and, and find out how much are you going to talk about this admin betrayal? Like, you know, cause I don't know if these people are going to want to hear that part of your message. Well, guess what? That's a critical part of my message. That's the things we need to talk about. We need to bring it out. We need to address it. And so I'm glad you asked that because it's a real issue and there are going to be hurdles. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy because it wasn't easy for me, but I'm going to tell you that what's more important, being here, being alive, being present for your family and for yourself or your career. In my case, I made the decision that my life was much more important than my career because I learned I was just a number filling a position. And that's the harsh reality of it. Your life is what matters most. But that's so hard, Mike. When you're in it, dude, and you're out there and you're pounding the pavement, and you're making a rest, and it feels so good, and you're like, I'm irreplaceable. You know what I mean? I'm good at this. And then you get an injury and you get hurt, and then you really see what happens. That you're a number, you're replaceable. And I think we put a lot of stock in our community, our team as law enforcement, as firefighters, as military, that those are our guys we're battling for, but they don't have the same, I don't want to say not loyalty, but they don't have the same moral path that you have, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, it absolutely does. And and the thing is that if there's people listening to this that are in leadership positions, you know, whether it's a first line supervisor all the way up to the chief, you can literally make or break someone's life by the way that you treat them when they ask for help. Because if you push them away, if you shun them, everyone's watching that. And the next person that needs that help, they're not going to come forward. And you're going to have to live with the fact that they took their own life. That's the reality. In my case, it wasn't my agency or the organization because I worked for a great department, but it came down to one or two people who literally almost pushed me over the edge again to where I wanted to take my own life. I mean, one single person can make that critical difference. I'm thinking of all the upper ups in my department. I'm thinking of all the people in the leadership. And I just wonder how we get to them. And people are saying, well, I'm seeing this stigma being broken. And it really, until it starts at the top, it's not going to be broken. I was fearful to talk about my issues. I remember there was, there was a, a day where a serious incident happens that I go into the, in the briefing and Nobody wants to talk about these issues. And I'm looking around, just like you said, and I think I'm the crazy one. Like, why am I feeling it? Why is it so tender to me? You know, am I just like soft? You know, baby died. We should all feel this, but nobody was. But it was, they were feeling it, but they weren't talking about it because they were pre, whatever you call it, they were conditioned on how to act. And we got to break that. We do. and But here's another point is that, Every incident is different for every person. You know, you and I could be involved in the same horrific, traumatic incident, and we could come out of it affected differently. But a lot of that goes into also, what is our personal experience? What's our childhood experience? What's going on at home? You know, the fact is, if you're a parent and you have a child, going to a child death call is going to be much worse than if you're, you know, right out of the academy, you're 20 years old, you're not married, you have no kids. Just the same as I remember when I was going through my horrific divorce and I had to go to domestic violence calls and disturbance calls, calls that before were nothing. It was like, let's go in there. Let's take care of business. But when I started going to those calls, when I was dealing with my own stuff, 
I took that personally. I absorbed it. I saw truly how these people were affected and what they were dealing with because I was dealing with it myself at home. And, and that's the thing is that we don't know what is going to break us. We don't know what is going to be that one incident. You know, my shooting was my incident that pushed me over the edge. But the fact is I had hundreds of traumatic incidents before that. But the problem is I didn't talk about those incidents. I didn't address it. And I firmly think that, hey, if we just address these things as they're happening, if we make it normal to have conversations about this stuff and just acknowledge our feelings, it doesn't have to be a big deal, but we acknowledge it. We address it. We talk about it openly. We can get through a full career. No problems. But I didn't do that. I bottled it up for eight years. Then the shooting happens. And then I bottled it up for four more years to the point where I literally want to die. But if I had been talking about this stuff from day one, I'd still be working today, 100%. No doubt. I would still be driving a black and white today. You know, it's interesting. I don't know. I have the stats. I don't, I'm not a stats guy, but it's something like most Americans experience six traumatic incidents in their lifetime. And us as police officers and firefighters and military, we're experiencing like six in a month. And those numbers are off, so don't hold me to those. But the number is just super different. And I look at that and I'm like, man, I could just go on and list all the freaking incidents that I had as an officer that were like, man, these things pile up. <laughs> they pile up. And I just wish we had a system. Michael, listen to this. This is my thought process. This is my soapbox, right? After you and I got in shootings, they made us go and see a psychologist. Okay, right? Before you could come back, you had to get cleared. You had to go see him. Now, my question is, why am I going to that guy? Why am I going into a lion's den? Why am I going into his office that's pristine, perfectly cleaned, and the guy's in a nice press suit, and the dude's never been punched in the face before? Why am I going to this guy and sitting down and talking to him? Why can't he come in my patrol car? Why can't he sit next to me in my office? Why can't he come and see what I do? Why can't he see what it looks like to do a traffic stop, stop in the middle of the dark or walk down a crazy-ass alley with people screaming, why can't they see us in that light? And then maybe they can say, hmm, let's have a different conversation. Because what I got in my shooting first question, hey, Officer Bevel, how you feeling? Well, what the hell you think? I just shot a guy, killed him, shot him in the face. Maybe that's not the first question to ask, but had you been in a situation like that or a scene or smelt it and all that, maybe you're questioning and your ability to communicate to my heart is a little bit different. Well, that, that goes into trust and building that relationship ahead of time before these big incidents happen. because. You know, we all saw a therapist for a critical incident debrief after our shooting, but it was a fact-finding mission. None of us talked about our feelings. None of us talked about emotion. We wanted to check that box and get back to work. You know, it was part of the process, and we know about the process. We know how to beat the process, and that's not what this is about. Like you said, build the relationship early on, so that way when you need them, you know you can trust them. And I think having them ride along with you, that's a great idea. That's a truly culturally competent therapist. You know, it's no different than a chaplain, right? A lot of agencies have chaplains. And what do chaplains do? They go out, they go to lineup, they sit in dispatch, they do ride-alongs. And they're pretty much a counselor, a therapist. They're people that you can talk to, you know, whether it's about your faith or your family or things going on at work. So why, like you said, can't we take that a step further and have these contracted therapists and psychologists that work for agencies and have them out there in the field? You know, have them really get to know these people and not just have it a, a process where you have to check the box and say, are you good? 
okay, you're good. You can go back to work. All right, let's send you back to work because that's not going to accomplish anything. This has been awesome, Mike. I could talk to you all day. My friends, go out on Amazon, grab the book, Relentless Courage. Mike, that, that's a, how did you come up with the, the title? So we had it like four or five different titles and it was just a matter of there was other people that we reached out to to kind of get their advice, get their opinion. And we wanted something that was positive, that showed strength, that showed hope. And it was really, it was a group effort. And there was a lot of people that contributed to this, but you know, every piece of this book has a story behind it, including the cover. And when people pick this up, they're going to see that, you know, there's other officers involved in this. There's a Canadian paramedic who's a famous artist involved in this, you know, a clinical psychologist. I mean, my best friend who's a Vietnam veteran, he has his own chapter in this book where he talks about his experience. And, and there's just so much to this. Everyone needs to go out there and read this. And if you get it, have your spouse read it, have your children read it, and then have a conversation. I can't tell you how many messages I've got where a first responder, they read it and then they gave it to their spouse and they literally talked for the first time about this. And I had messages that told me it saved their marriage because it opened that communication for the very first time. Dude, this is awesome. Man, I can't tell you how how proud I am of you, man. I'm I'm proud, first of all, I'm your friend. I'm I'm proud that you're going out there and saving people's lives. I understand the work you're doing, man. I know it's God's work. I know you're an ambassador. You're doing what you're supposed to do. So this is Michael Sugru, guys, author. Let's to be honest, the best-selling author. How many weeks? 20 weeks in a row, did you say? There's a little bit over 20 weeks. Guys, go out and buy the book on Amazon, Relentless Courage. Mike, man, hey, brother, to me, to you, I love you. I appreciate your courage. I appreciate you putting that out there. And I will definitely help you promote this and get this out. And thank you for saving lives, brother. And thank you, brother, for saving lives. We're both doing God's work and we're both, we're making a difference. That's what this is all about. So thank you, brother. Amen. Thank you, man. We'll see you next time, Mike. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcast to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.